of visions when I was younger and after each one ended the same thought would be stuck in my head what did you see I saw none word of my visions reached the church and I was asked to accompany a priest to an abbey in Romania the abbey has a long history and welcome to the pod and the pendulum the horror movie podcast covering every horror movie franchise one movie in one episode at a time i am your host mike snoonian joined once again by my co-host Lindsay travis on this fine summer evening Lindsay, how are we tonight i am good i'm like ready to discuss what is in my opinion the most underrated installment in this franchise so is it the most underrated I- movie in the world no no okay all right well we are here to talk about the 2018 supernatural thriller the nun and we have a last minute guest joining us tonight welcome back to the show uh always a pleasure to have this gentleman on so when last second he was like hey i I can talk this movie i'm like bring it down papa shango let's do it um we have Stephen Foxworthy from the Disenfranchised podcast. Stephen, how are we doing tonight? Doing great, Mike. Excited to talk about what I also feel is the most underrated film in this franchise. Okay. Huge. hmm. Indeed. You know, this was a uh, first time watch for me. So I guess my question is, and I, I, to be honest, like, didn't pay a lot of attention to the hubbub around this movie. So maybe you can both clue me in. Like, how is this movie generally seen by fans? I think it just like came and went. Like, I remember mm-hmm. everyone being like, it's boring. It's inconsistent. It's like, it just like came and went. And like, as someone who's seen, I think, well, obviously not part three, because I was 
in lockdown, but who's seen every Conjuring franchise installment in theaters. I never saw this one in theaters because I just remember everyone was like, eh, I'm like not into mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. And then I watched it like, I don't know, a year later. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why didn't people like this? But I don't know. I think, is that what you think, Stephen? Like, I don't know. Based on what I've uh, what I've seen online, kind of the discourse, and I came to this franchise very late, by which I mean I watched it this year for the first time. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of decided I will. I, I, starting in quarantine, I got into these phases where I would watch the entirety of a franchise or of a director's filmography just all in one go. And mm-hmm. so this year, I decided to do that with the franchise, and I kind of did like a background or a backdoor James Wan watch through as well. Um, but the, like just the discourse from what I understand is that this is widely regarded as one of the worst ones. Uh, and I watched it and I was like, um, not to be contrary or anything, but this is one of the best ones. Cause it kind of rules. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it's just, I just thought it was very well done. I thought the premise was really engaging and really fun. Um, I also, um, love anything that kind of runs the gamut, uh, in terms of, what the film is about, uh, like just the, the essence of, of faith with regard to what is real, what is not like, that's something I'm always drawn to in a film. So mm-hmm. this one was, it seems like it was pitched right down the middle, right to me. So yeah. I, I just glommed on and had a, had a good old time. Mm-hmm. It's funny because like, I am by no means like a lot of the movies in this series are a first time watch for me. Like I w- saw the first movie in theaters, really enjoyed it tried watching the second one a number of times and for whatever reason could never finish it and no fault of the movie it was just i think when i tried watching it it was like either too late at night or i had trouble discerning the accents um so this was a first time watch for the show for me and it was enjoyable i had things i really like about it um i think stylistically it is the best of the series in terms of like production design, set design, kind of what it does with a couple of the characters here or there. Um, It's funny that this is the, I think it's maybe seen on par with like the first Annabelle movie in that it's kind of considered one of the lesser entries in the series. Because A, I think this movie kind of blows that one out of the water. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also, and all of these movies have been like very successful. But it is to the to date, it is the most successful of any of the movies in the series in that it pulled in almost three hundred and sixty-six million on twenty-two million bucks. Like it opened to fifty-four million in the United States. It was like one of the biggest R, you know, horror movie openings for like an R-rated movie. I think like a month later, um, David Gordon Green's uh, the Exorcist is David Gordon Green. Uh, his Halloween movie came out and, and beat that record or near record. Um, but it was a pretty big opening, especially like early September, like right after the kids go back to school and before everybody is really thinking about the spooky season. It's like you drop that movie in the early fall and everybody flocked to it. So um, I find it really fascinating, I guess, like the because I think we're all plugged into quote unquote, like horror Twitter or the horror community, how we tend to see some of these movies versus maybe like how your average, like what's playing at the theaters this weekend. Let's open up the old, you know, 
entertainment section in the newspaper and see what's at the Cineplex right now, how we tend to have like much different tastes. Yeah. Like, you know, if we had our way, like Lars von Trier would be pulling in like Titanic money. I mean, like, I guess why doesn't this movie hit? It's wild to think upon reflection that this one was like so financially successful. I mean, I'm actually, I, I couldn't find, and if there's anything that I just like missed, that was super obvious. They already were working on a sequel, like right after this came out, which obviously makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If it, you know, with that financial success and it feels like it was like super stalled, but then again in 2019, it like came up again, but I don't know. Like, is this movie in production? I have no idea. I'm not sure if it's in production, but there is like, there's been an announced none too. And I think maybe it's kind of, we, we, there's no way there won't be a sequel to this. Like it's made, it's made way too much money. Do you know what I mean? Like they said it cleared like 150 million in profit once they factored everything in, which is like in, crazy amount of money that's just that stupid point. money right there yeah. it's dumb I mean, money that's, yeah. that is like marvel movie money yeah absolutely. but you know then I mean? you have to wonder like i think what's so cool about this movie though is it's so contained like valak mm-hmm. shows up um so many times throughout this franchise and this movie's like so so contained and loops back around to the conjuring mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're almost like, no, if the nun works so well, more spinoffs, which is what I assumed the mm-hmm. uh, after Annabelle comes home. I was like, okay, spinoffs are the future of this franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I'm like, oh, well, now they're kind of doing the comic book spinoff. So maybe they won't actually spin yeah. off more of these characters. And I wonder, I'm kind of curious, like, do you think that like Valak is an important enough character that you want more of her in a sequel? Or is it more like, no, we like this like gallery of scares and we want like more spinoffs of that? My answer to that question, Lindsay, is why not both? Okay. Honestly, because yeah. I like I like Valak. I love that character. I love what they do with her in this movie. I love what they do with her in The Conjuring 2. Like very formidable um, character. Uh, but then also I absolutely love that menagerie of horrors in the Warren's uh, crypt room or whatever. Artifact they're, they're room. Keepsake room. Yeah, they're an artifact room. Um, that everything they keep there, particularly I love the werewolf, the what was it the black shunk? Was that what they called it? I don't know. We're not to Annabelle know. comes home yet, but yeah, um, I don't remember. If it, Annabelle yeah. can get two sequels, the nun can get one, at least True. one. All right. And should, honestly. That's uh, that's that's where I'm coming from yeah. as as someone who has watched and enjoyed most of this franchise or watched all and enjoyed most of this franchise. So absolutely. It it definitely feels like they're building and they're probably not. This is just the way my brain works, but it feels like with the third conjuring movie, they were kind of building towards like a Legion of doom type of like hall of supervillains in the conjuring universe. And they were going to team up. And I know that that's probably not the case. I'm um, here for it though. Um, I would be here for that. Well, I kind of want that. Interested in that. I think that might happen. I mean, I don't know they'll necessarily team up, but like the spinoff comics are taking other things from their menagerie, mm-hmm. as you said, and creating like little short stories that will ultimately have overlap. Mm-hmm. I mean, Valak has been mentioned in. So Valak, obviously we don't meet her until the conjuring two, but then she has mm-hmm. a cameo in Annabelle uh, creation and then this movie makes implications that she had something to do with The Conjuring, the first one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think that yeah. these movies are going to absolutely mess with overlap. 
consistently mm-hmm. and forever. And yeah. I'm like really excited for our conversation about The Conjuring 3, about right. how it ties in the whole Annabelle cult to that universe. So. I am looking forward to that conversation where you and our guest help me <laughs> make sense of that movie because um, it, to me, kind of a turd burger of a movie. <laughs> I was also I'm, I'm, not super positive on The Conjuring 3. Yeah, so I look it. forward to that that episode as well. So I will, I will be, yeah, I will be polite. (laughs) We're going to have fun. Like we'll have, we'll always have fun. Yeah. Um, I find that like Valak or the character of the nun is, I think more interesting than like just Annabelle Mm. is, I think, you know, Annabelle is cool because it's a doll, you know, and and, and there is something like fun about creepy dolls. Um, but I think, like, as a character, and I apologize, I am going to pull up the performer right now because oh I did not know it's Bonnie Aarons, right? I believe you are correct. Um, if, if my I, memory is good, I think it's Bonnie Aarons because mm-hmm. I'm not looking at anything right now. I believe she brings, like, a real physicality to the role. Um, I like the way they have her move in this, and I think, like... You're right. Bonnie Aarons yes, is the is nun. And she has these like very unique features um, mm. that uh, basically like her bone structure, the way like she looks like is very well. She's very well suited to kind of play this kind of like um, scary looking character, not to imply that Miss Aarons is scary looking, but the way they do her up. Yeah. I think they're able to like highlight her in a way that like, and she brings a real physicality to the role where I wouldn't mind seeing more of her. Um, She's very cool. And- like she also um, was in uh, Jacob's Wife recently as the master. Uh, She's also cool. the scariest character in the history of film. She's the bum behind the restaurant in Mulholland Drive. Right. That's a fact. Yeah. So, so she's incredibly cool. Um, huge fan. And uh, yeah, I definitely want to see more mm-hmm. of her. Like, apparently, yeah, it, like she is signed up for part yeah, two. Yeah, I mean, she, she, I think, is the only actor currently uh, on on the books for The Nun 2, mm-hmm. which at this point is still just announced, but. Right. Announced. So announced. we'll see where it Yeah, goes. she's awesome, and she's I, so scary. Uh, I would be shocked if they don't do another one. Like it would absolutely blow my mind if they don't do another one. So we're back. You know, Gary Doberman is back um, scripting this movie again. I think at this stage, you can argue that he has a larger influence on the series as a whole than like James Wan does by this point. Um, He has written all the Annabelle movies. He's written this movie next week or next time that we meet. We're going to talk about him um, getting behind the director's chair and helming Annabelle Comes Home. Um, You know, I know that Juan gets a story by credit. I'm not, I I really don't know how much Juan is doing with the movies at this point. I mean, he's pretty knee deep between the Aquaman movies and whatever else he has going on. But I think they could almost say Doberman has more to do with the success of these movies at this point. You can, I think you can certainly make that case, and I think that's yeah. honestly probably one I would make. Um, you know, Juan's the bigger name, and I think Juan's the guy that gets the butts in the seats, but yeah. Doberman's the guy on the ground who's actually, yeah. you know, doing the legwork and seems to really yeah. be pushing this thing uphill. And not that it needs a lot of help, I mean, but yeah, he's yeah. he's the one doing a lot of the work, I think. 
Okay. I was just gonna say like Juan also always has like production credits and like presumably there's some like story canon oversight kind of thing that comes through him, but feet on the ground is a good way to look at it. Like he's a you know, he's a very workmanlike director. I don't know, or writer. I don't like there is a very specific structure to the way Doberman's movies work. I think we see this with like his it films. Um, I'm interested to see is Salem's Lot a TV miniseries or is it going to be like a multi-picture movie? I can't remember. I don't know. To me, like it, it seems like it's crying out for like a kind of season long adaptation like The Outsider was, because I think so much of what makes Salem's Lot work is a lot. It's really was Stephen King's first attempt at like world building, like what you see later on with like Derry, Maine, um, but more specifically what you see with like the Castle Rock books. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of interested to see how Doberman handles bringing all of these characters in because that's so much of what made Salem's Lot work as a novel. Um, I think it gets lost in translation uh, in the movie adaptations, even Toby Hooper's movie, which I think is a really strong, you know, made for TV film. Like it does miss something because there's only so much you can do even in like a mini series. Um, but yeah, the directing duties this time, they're handed off to an Irish filmmaker, Corin Hardy, uh, Hardy's history. He has a long history of short films and music videos. He had just made his debut feature film, um, the hallow in 2015. I remember, I think I even remember introducing that movie at Telluride horror show that year i know that it was part of our festival lineup when it was making the festival rounds i'll be honest it's been about six years since i've seen it i just remember it being like a kind of a home invasion movie where the woods are the home invaders um pretty well done creepy and atmospheric and i think that this was a pretty you know based on the strength of that movie he gets handed the keys to like a pretty big franchise at that point so yeah i mean yeah like we chatted about how this movie looks it looks awesome it looks very i think what's cool about this one is that it looks really different from the others like the conjuring movies all they're different they're different settings but they have a similar aesthetic and it's cool that this one looks really different well the thing i love most about this movie is the fact that the setting itself is so much different than anything we've seen before or since in this franchise Mm -hmm. like these are all period pieces so you all kind of expect them to have the look of a certain time frame but with the exception of this one, they all take place in either a city or a suburb, Mm -hmm. uh, like populated areas. And this takes place in essentially Michael Mann's The Keep, like this kind of giant stone castle in the middle of nowhere. Um, And it's kind of awesome. Like I, that's one of the things I love most about this is, and that brings its own atmosphere around it, which is just so different from everything else we've seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was filmed on location in Romania and parts of Transylvania, um, and it has that look to it. It has that lived in Eastern European look. And I think just setting it in Eastern Europe, I, you know, Conjuring 2 takes place in London, but this is the first and I think only of the movies that doesn't, that takes place in Eastern Europe as opposed to like the Western Hemisphere. And there is like an old world feel to it. I don't know if either of you have ever read uh, Elizabeth Kostova's like the historian. I've not. It, it's an amazing novel. Um, it's a very cool spin on Dracula. It's kind of written the same way that 
um, Stoker's novel is. It is about this like, young woman whose father disappears hunting the historical Vlad Tepish. Um, and it assumes that the historical Dracula is actually a vampire. Uh, and it's the hunt for him. And it's very creepy. Uh, it takes place mostly like in between like post-World War One, and also um, during the early stages of the Cold War. And it moves around a lot around like Eastern Europe and Western Europe. And it just describes like Romania and these beautiful romantic. You feel like you're kind of there. Um, cool. So it's a novel I'd strongly recommend or get the audio book of it because they have a lot of uh character like different people reading for different characters cool. so awesome. it kind of like feels that. like a stage play absolutely love it but I yeah this down so yeah the nun feels like a, a homa an homage to like hammer and universal horror in yeah a lot of ways. well it's like super yeah. gothic do you know what i mean yeah. like you've got mm-hmm. a stone castle in the dark mm-hmm. for most of this movie and you even get those like um like it's not a haunted house movie but you still get those like external shots of like the happy people with like you know birds chirping in the grass um and then you know they go inside this like scary gothic castle to discover things and yeah you know strange happenings and goings on that no one notices are real till very late um way too late yeah yeah which is like it's cool it includes one of my favorite underused tropes where you have like the villagers that are set apart from the giant evil that is just on the outskirts of town and nobody mm-hmm. goes there. And you have like the villagers who are superstitious, like criminals, a cowardly and superstitious lot. Um, <laughs> you have them saying, you know, like our crops are dying because this place is evil. Our children are committing suicide because this place is evil. Um, but they don't think there's anything they can do about it, so they just avoid it. I love that trope. Um, there's the you know classic like cemetery in the moonlight. Oh, um, so good. Yeah, the nun to me feels like a classic monster out of the universal mold in some ways. Um, Such so, a good monster. <laughs> I, I'd call yeah. it like pure hammer horror, um, except for just like the other films in the series like there is like just the scarcest whiff of sexuality in this movie uh, just in the, the form of frenchy yeah <laughs> and it like it dips its toe in the water and says too cold and then like walks away um well, I mean, your main characters are a nun and a priest so there's right not a lot well, of yeah i mean i'm laughing because yeah. like these movies are i guess generally pretty sexless but then at the same time like the warrens are so thirsty like there's always moments of them being like it's too bad we can't sleep beside each other and like yeah. there's i mean of course they are like they look like that but um right <laughs> they're like super thirsty the entire time but yeah this movie's pretty sexless but it it, it thinks about yeah. it it thinks about it for like a half a second and then <laughs> it says nope where to me like part of the allure of hammer horror you know part of the you have instead of bella lugosi you have christopher lee like at his peak where you know he's like a very handsome tall man and there was just something very sexual about him and the way he portrays dracula even peter cushing at that time you know there's just like eroticism all over the place when it comes to the hammer movies. Um, There's just none of really very little of it here. And I was thinking like when I was putting my notes together, thinking back on like the couple and the Annabelle movie, the forms 
um they for all intents and purposes like when you watch classic sitcoms from that era you have the married couple like sleeping in like separate twin beds Mm -hmm. and it almost feels like that's what they should have been you you could imagine them like sleeping like that yeah so it's just like i don't yeah and we'll talk a little more about some of the morality of this movie and where it fits in with the other conjuring movie i think as we get maybe a little deeper into it and Lindsay, i know you have a note here on the score from uh abel Oh yeah. I just like really like this score. Um, I think it's really scary. I love the like it's not like the like Hans Zimmer like womp sound, but there's this like wah sound that just kind mm-hmm. of like comes through. It's so scary. Um what I really notice about it is that it's like a constant sound. So like usually there's like a you know, some kind of like build up and then like pop in these types of scores but this one is like a scary approaching sound the whole mm-hmm. time which really works because the nun is kind of scary and approaching the entire time and i just like love it like i just think it's like so outstanding especially even compared to the rest of the franchise which has pretty good music this one really stands out to me and mm-hmm. like is memorable um so it's by a guy named uh, abel korzianowski i want to say korzianowski mm-hmm. uh and yeah, I just he doesn't have a ton of work under his belt. Um, he does, but like his most notable stuff was Penny Dreadful and Nocturnal Animals. Um, but I think he just like really cool work here. Like, uh, give me mm. more. Come back for the sequel. Yeah. Do something new. <laughs> and having that, having that single note that kind of plays. Like, there are certain notes or frequencies that you can hit that disorient a person mm-hmm. or that can create a feeling of dread. It's funny. Uh, my wife and I just started to watch that show on CBS Evil. Like oh, we yeah. For like a fun like summertime watch. We just watched the pilot. And um, we were she, we were talking after about how there are like, I think the catacombs of Scotland is one of the, one of the places where you go into them and you immediately feel like they're haunted because like the way they were positioned and the way like what your body does is it immediately kicks into you know, like we're a prey animal, like we get, we can get potentially hunted. Your brain immediately starts to look for an exit or starts to think that there is some other presence there. So like the way certain notes can hit, it can kind of put your body or your brain on high alert to kind of be looking out because you're right. Like one of the, I like about this movie, although I think it maybe hits that note a little bit too much is the way the nun will not be in a shot it'll pan and then she's there and she's just in the background kind of waiting and you just feel the presence of her there without anything actually happening um speaking of the nun Mm -hmm. so what's cool i like i think so this movie is really cool because it has a few twists throughout which i think is super fun because it's only about 96 minutes i want to say it's one of the shorter ones um and it also like it uses yeah you love it you love to see in the 90s and it uses its runtime really well like there are enough twists that you're never just watching scary stuff happen like things are always happening and i love that about this movie and um obviously the first colossal twist uh is well i don't know there's a few twists there's one where you first learn that the gosh what's her name the abbess uh, shoot mm-hmm. i want to say the abbess i think that's it the abbess yep uh you're yeah. like oh the abbess is like not real and she's very much the manifestation of some sort of demon 
And it's like, yeah, like no shit. <laughs> like why were the characters talking to this like obvious demon and a black veil over her face spitting like spooky, like mm-hmm. phrases. I like that moment. I'm like, Oh, like, yeah, like we all knew that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Like this yeah. is evil. Like, she could have, if she had a mustache, she would be twirling it right. all the time. Like, they're like, like oh, pure evil. oh, we're shocked to hear it. I can't believe it. This is startling mm. information. Um, and they, like, right. listen to her and, like, believe her. And they know evil's there. It's not like they're, like, surprised to find out that there's evil stuff happening. Like, they're mm. very aware of it. Um, and that makes me laugh a lot. But they're, anyway, yeah, I don't know. Was that, like, would you be having a combo with this? haunted looking nun in the basement no. of a haunted convent Absolutely. i would probably have a brief conversation but i would not like just go oh okay sure whatever you say the kind of the way that they do that that seem i mean obviously you need to do that for plot reasons but by the same token you should be kind of like uh, really are maybe we, we are should we come sure back with this? reinforcements yeah. right Maybe we need to bring some more. Where are those villagers with their pitchforks and their torches? We could use a few of them right about now. Absolutely. Yeah, we could use a quick hand. So, but there's... I think this... Mm-hmm. I was just going to say there's more twists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think we'll, maybe we'll hit them as we kind of go through the movie here. Yeah. Um, I think this movie opens on a pretty strong note. I like the tone it sets early. Um, I would say like the primary films in the conjuring series the first two movies in particular and i would say like annabelle creation excellent use of shadow excellent use of just like pitch black darkness um i love the swirling fog that is somehow inside of this abbey and it is swirling at about knee length for the two nuns as they make their way down um it sets up the picture. I think, you know, we'll get into one of the twists later on, but I think you're kind of led to believe that these are the last two um, sisters that are in the building. Um, You don't see the threat. I mean, you kind of know, like if you're watching a movie, like, Oh, it's going to be the nun, but I like that they hold back showing her initially. Um, And I do like the, um, I would call it kind of a, not like a, a quick nod to the omen the way where the first sister like puts the, you know, hangs herself out through the window and like swings out. And I know Lindsay, you kind of wanted to discuss whether we felt like that, how that was handled. Uh, So what were your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know. I think, I mean, listen, we're talking about, you know, post-World War II Romania. Um, So like, I don't expect the characters to have like, progressive views on mental illness per se Mm -hmm. um especially like coming from the church so certainly there's that element um i'm not gonna like ask that of the movie but i was just kind of curious like if anyone had thoughts about how they like tackled it with like it's the ultimate gravest sin Mm -hmm. um because i was like well it's kind of yucky but i kind of the like the thoughts that i have on it and that's why i'm like so curious your takes is that it that's what makes it the really effective twist is that it's like it, she committed the ultimate sin um, with this, but then you find out that like what she did was actually the ultimate sacrifice to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, spare uh, everyone, the haunting of the nun. So I kind of like, I don't know. I just like, don't know how I feel about it. Cause I think that like that payoff is like pretty worth it, but I also am like, Ooh, gross. So I don't know. I was just curious. As a lapsed Catholic, 
um, and it's someone that like grew up as an altar boy and went to like a Catholic high school. Um, the church's view on suicide as most of like the Vatican's view on many things is very regressive um, and really hasn't moved in 2000 plus years. So it's kind of expected like it would be, it would be incongruous for like a scene in the Vatican to talk about a member of the cloth or a sister committing suicide and have them kind of, um, because especially because they don't really know what's going on. They know something is there. It wouldn't, it really wouldn't fit in terms of them kind of like allowing for it. Um, so the, the typical Catholic view of suicide is it's considered the, as part of the Ten Commandments, like "Thou shall not kill," you combine that with the theology that says, like, the gift of life is the greatest gift that God can give a person, um, and to abandon that or to take that away is to kind of spit in the face of God and to condemn yourself at that point. It's a to your point, like I a hundred percent agree. Like, it take doesn't take mental health. It doesn't take even like health circumstances. I mean, there's a whole debate around assisted suicide. And, you know, I remember growing up with the Kevorkian scandals where he was assisting, you know, helping people um, transition to end of life. So they wouldn't suffer tremendous um, pain or tremendous cognitive loss. And they wanted to die with dignity And the church. Doesn't really have a die with dignity plan. Um, so I didn't really have an issue with it. Um, I also like, didn't that's because like we know that like well she's doing this because like the other nun has encouraged it like you need to do this um and if you can't god can't save you. even the nun says well if you don't god can't save you so it's almost you're you're doing it i i took it as like she's doing this so that she doesn't fall prey to oh well she's like i didn't I didn't necessarily read it that way initially like the first the first time i watched this on on first blush she says, you know what you need to do, but I get the impression, at least from watching it, and maybe it's my own religious baggage that I'm carrying into it with mm-hmm. me. I get the impression that she she's starting to do what needs to be done and then commit suicide instead. And I think that's my, mm-hmm. maybe the reading the filmmakers want you to carry in so that 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 reveal later on in the film becomes more impactful, question mark. Um, but I didn't I didn't necessarily have that same read on it, but I um I like that read a lot better. Uh, and, and obviously in retrospect, it becomes, I think a lot more clear. Um, but I, I, you know, I grew up in a very conservative, um, denomination of the Christian church as well, not Catholicism, but you know, it's the one that Charles Manson was raised in. So there's something to be said there. And I wouldn't necessarily call myself a lapsed Christian. Um, though certain aspects of Christianity, I very much dislike um and certain things that are done in the name of of jesus i i very much dislike but by that same token um you know my my experience is very similar to mike's in terms of what the church believes about uh suicide i think we were more at least in my local parish a lot more interested in the conversation um you know having having the conversation about you know what does it mean to commit suicide what are the reasons why someone might and having people around me in my life who had experienced that through a loved one um, who had, who had gone through something that had led them to that point. Um, And so I don't, and of course with my own personal view, I don't see that as, you know, something 
quote unquote unforgivable necessarily. I mm-hmm. and given given the way the act itself is framed within the context of the scripture, the Christian scriptures, you can absolutely see where someone would would come to that conclusion. But I don't necessarily think that that's always fair. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously. Um, and I think, and again, you're right in terms of mental illness and things, those things generally would not come into consideration in the church a, and at this point in time B. Um, but I think it's, it's, I think it's worth a worthwhile to have those conversations. I think the, the correlation between mental health and horror is one that endlessly fascinates me. Um, I mean, Mike, you've got a oh, whole podcast, podcast devoted. Podcast. Yeah. Mike's like, I have a podcast about it. <laughs> He's like, I'm quite and literally the expert in the field. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that, but you know, I do. I do know that. To say. It's, and um, it's a great podcast and I love it. But I mean, yeah, that's it. That's kind of, you know, what I'm, what I, you know, there, that correlation is, is constant and real and fascinating. And um, I don't know. I, I find that, that twist at the end, that ultimate sacrifice twist, so compelling and so um, affirming uh, for the story that I, I don't know. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm like, I said, like I'm pretty mixed on it. Um, but I do like, again, I do. Yeah. Like the payoff is there. I'm still like, is it enough payoff? But like, I think, I I don't know. I don't know. I'm mixed on it, but, uh, yeah, it was very much like she's, you know, I'm not going to be the vessel. So we're going to leave this place. Um, you know, without a human vessel to be taken by Valak, uh, so that it can't enter the world. Um, which I also think is really cool. Like these movies do a good job. Um, I know there's like often conversations about the continuity and there's often conversations like people said that this movie is inconsistent, but I don't really feel that's true. Um, it's an interesting continuity piece about the um, needing a human in order to enter our realm because that comes up so often. And like in all the Annabelle movies, we always you know think of Annabelle as possessed and the Warrens are constantly like, Annabelle cannot be possessed. Annabelle is an object. People are possessed. And so it's like cool that this movie, it goes for that. Like it makes the point of being like, no, it needs a human vessel. Like it exploits a specific part of like Warren, which it's not really Warren canon. It's like general demonology, but like, or I should say probably mostly Christian demonology, but it exploits like quote unquote Warren canon for that. And then also uses it to like, tell us how Valak came close to, the Warrens earlier than we thought, which is like so dope. (laughs) That's how you build a cinematic universe. Hollywood take note. Master class in building a cinematic universe. Um, Like, so for those, I mean, I hope that you've watched this movie before you listen to this podcast, because we always spoil it top to bottom. But for those who want the quick recap, um, you know, in the first conjuring, we've got the Perron family, uh, we've got uh, Mrs. Perron, paid by um, Lily. You know her name. Anyway, uh, <laughs> she sits in this like lecture hall and watches the video of the Warrens talking about an exorcism and where um, Ed Warren first tells us the stages of an exorcism, which is a constant, like a consistent thing that hap- you know is reiterated throughout the series, specifically when it comes mm-hmm. to Annabelle, but throughout the whole Conjuring series. And we get that at the end. So we've seen that clip before. It's in the back of our minds. And I think it's a reshoot because I don't believe it's the same actor um, when I checked. I don't think that he is credited for The Conjuring, but I could be wrong. But anyway, 
You basically it has see to be a different actor. I think it's a different they actor. They weren't planning that far ahead. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless he just got like a really exciting phone call to be like, we know you played a bit part, but guess what? Um, but we get to see that video again of the exorcism that is mentioned um, by Ed Warren in his lecture that we've seen in the first Conjuring movie. And we realize that it's Frenchie and he's being exercised uh, of Valak, um, which is like, I th- <sighs> yeah, I think what's sad there too, because I remember I like the character of Frank. We're going to talk about the characters here in a moment. Um, I remember in the conjuring, I think we even talked about it in the episode, like how dismissive Ed was of the gentleman who was possessed. He was like, yeah, he ended up killing himself because he really didn't have that much going on for him in life. And you're like, woof. And it's like, dude, that's woof. Like, not Yikes. cool. Huge and then you see this character in this movie and he's so full of life. He's a bit of a scoundrel, but in like the best possible way, he seems really well liked. He seems to maybe tempt Sister Irene a little bit from maybe not wanting to take the vows. Um, but mm-hmm. he's never not a gentleman at the same time. Like he never crosses the line. Um, you know, to quote Harrison Ford in, or to quote Han Solo, like you like a scoundrel, you like because I'm a scoundrel. You know? <laughs> yeah. He's great. I mean, yeah. um, so to have it like tie back into that is a really cool way to tie the two movies together in a way that doesn't feel like a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also kind of makes me feel a little bit like, ah, oh, it's a bit like once the kind of shock of it wears off, that's pretty cool. You're like, but, oh, he's going to end up killing himself. You're like, oh, Frenchie. Yeah. Um, so let's yeah. talk. Let's talk Frenchie and Sister Irene and Father Burke. As always, I think we have a really good cast. Here. Great. Like, like great cast. This is a stellar cast. And as much as I really, really like this movie, I don't think that's a secret at all. This cast is, like, this movie's cast is above its weight class. Like, 100%. This cast is unreal. And you're kind of like, they're in, like, a weird spinoff. Of, I mean, obviously, again, like, it grossed a trillion dollars. So it's always funny to, mm-hmm. like, be like, this is this one's not well-liked and, like, the small shitty one. But obviously, it's not really the case. It just feels like it. But right. um, this cast is absurd. Like. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. So good. Um, I mean, we've anytime got... Damien Bashir is in a movie, I'm I'm totally and 100 percent on board. That guy can do no wrong, in my opinion. He's so good. He's so good. When he shows up, like at like early in the film, I remember being like, "Wait, what? Like, how did they how did they get him?" <laughs> like, I was like, "How?" And he's there, like he's in it throughout. I mean, yeah, I don't know. The cast is unreal. Mm. Um, you even have uh, I think it's so funny that you have Michael Smiley in like a bit part. which like i know he's not exactly like you know a hollywood a-lister but he does a lot of really funny bit parts like we talked about gunpowder milkshake last uh or surprise in our patron episode um (laughs) there's a freebie for you um and he also plays a bit part in that which is really funny but yeah you have michael smiley in a bit part which is unreal um he's one of those guys anytime he shows up you just you know you're in good hands you just sit back like oh mike's here it's good no. He's like the living embodiment of, well, I guess not really. Him showing up is the embody, and everyone watching him is the embodiment of like that Leo meme. Like we're all like, oh, that's the guy. Mm-hmm. I just saw mm-hmm. him in that other thing. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing: I'm doing that through pretty much most of this movie. Like everyone, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, oh, like, like that's the guy from that thing. Um, uh, Tessa Farmiga, who um, 
American Horror Story, the first season. Um, I'm trying to think at the moment what else she's been in, but I know she's been like pretty enjoyable in anything I've seen her in. She is uh, Vera's little sister. She's her little sister. Has played yes. her daughter. Yes, which is yes. hilarious to me. Uh, Final Girls, The Mule. Yes, Final Girls, um, which is great. She just rules and the mule. Apply. You get the James Wan connection because that is a uh, Lee Wanao film, like his kind of like crime comedy. Okay. The mule is no. This is the Clint Eastwood. The mule. Oh, oh I was like, what did I Whoopsie. miss? Okay. <laughs> Whoopsie. Um, <laughs> she's in In a Valley of Violence, another criminally underrated. Oh no, wait. Am I thinking of In the Valley of Violence? Is that a different movie? We're, no, in a valley of violence, uh, the really cool uh, western with uh, Ethan Hawke. She's in that. Uh, Bling Ring, which I've that. heard good things about, but have oh, yeah, I never saw. Seen. I think that's one of her like first films. I think. Yep. I think it's like mm-hmm. one of her. Yeah, yeah. She's great. We love her. It's funny. She looks so much younger in this than she does in other stuff mm-hmm. that she shot much earlier. But she's just really cool. She's great at being like the cool girl that you like. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean. She's kind of like sister hipster in this. Yeah, she is. She's like, she talks about science. Mm -hmm. I like like that introduction. Like, you know, you have like the kids gathered around her and she's not afraid to kind of bad mouth mother superior, um, much to the delight and horror of the school children. She's like, look, you know. Don't smack me. Well, they kind of put you on her side immediately too. Like she's, yes, she's a part of this institution that, yes is done a lot of good but a lot of bad as well Mm -hmm. and she's willing to engage with it on both levels uh which i think is is really i mean that that makes her a compelling character in my book like i'm like yes i'm totally on board tessa take me with you absolutely yeah yeah it's not a coincidence that like that's her intro is her Mm -hmm. being like the progressive nun like or the progressive Mm -hmm. None in training. Novice. Yes. No, no, no. <laughs> um, she's, uh, you know, it's it makes perfect sense that like that's how they'd intro her and like it works. And it's also cool because, you know, later she's very much like, why me? Um, and you learn it's because of her dreams uh, mm-hmm. as a youngster. Because you're kind of like, why did they the bring her here? Visions, you know? A little mm-hmm. bit of Joan of Arc going on there with Ooh, the last getting Mary points the way. Which, um, yeah. You have... You know, not like you, your introduction of Frenchie, like he is the one that discovers the nun hanging in a really gruesome scene. Like gruesome. that body is picked over, um, you know, and I, I, I feel like these movies kind of get looked at as like almost like PG-13 horror or lesser horror, but they're not afraid to go for some bits of real. We talked about this a bit in Annabelle creation you have like a, a bisected corpse, you know, hanging from like, you know, crucified on a wall in that movie. Like, you know, it's not afraid to give you some really good gory bits uh, within the movie. And you get your later int- second introduction to him where he comes out and he, s- he assumes that he's seeing like a either a father and daughter or a jilted husband and young wife. And he's like, who am I apologizing to here? You know, like you can tell that he is like the town again the town scoundrel the town player a bit of a lothario like yeah and it, yeah. yeah you're right it does kind of make him immediately likable uh and he and tessa have a very strong will they won't they energy like their chemistry is fantastic and so you're 
you're compelled to see where it goes mm-hmm. to see what role he's going to play in her story. Yeah. And it turns and out a tragic goes, one, sadly, you know, Demi and Bashir, he gives a certain arrogance to Father Burke. He gives a certain air, of, not only just an air of authority, but there's an arrogance to him where he makes the presumption like, well, you'll take us back to the castle that nobody wants to go to. And it's like not even up for discussion. It's like, right, it's settled. Then you'll bring us like, I'll do what now? Um, I think part of that is also the fact that he's the only Academy Award nominated actor in this movie. So true. He's very commanding, so that makes perfect sense. I would do anything that he said. <laughs> okay, good to know. <laughs> good um, to know. Well, not anything that he said. Let's let's chill. I just find that he's very commanding. Um, mm-hmm. What's with maybe you two know the answer to this? I tried to figure it out. What is with Frenchie being French Canadian? Is there any payoff to that know. other than the like French Canadian that he like spits in Balak's face? Yeah, I thought it was like a thing. Um, they call him Frenchie because he's French. Um, and then he's like, I'm French Canadian, which he clarifies. But he like very clearly has his Brussels accent mm-hmm. <laughs> where the actor was born. <laughs> Not a French Canadian accent. Right. At all. Um, and I just was like, so I was like, is, what is the gag here? What's the joke here? I still can't figure it out. I still haven't found it. But he does when uh, the, the uh, when Valak says something about him being French, he's like, French Canadian. And she's like, no. Um. Not from Canada. <laughs> well, it's just the, you know, the just inherent power of the, of the Canadian people, really. Let me just say, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> a dangerous punch. A very dangerous. We're dangerous. Punch. And when someone adds Canadian to the end of their mm-hmm. identity, I w- will out. say like, he is the one main character that is punished like the way this movie ends again you know oh, yeah. around a little bit like you know he essentially sacrifices himself to go back and help sister irene and father burke and he's punished for it and i feel like he's punished because of his background because he's the character that is promiscuous because he's the character that hasn't settled down and is a bit of the lothario there is this odd puritanism that kind of runs through all the conjuring movies. We see it in part three where the only character to date that I think we've seen is queer coded. The two of them are killed. One is possessed and commit suicide. The other one is murdered by her. Um, the other character that dies in the conjuring three, like, well, he likes to drink and listen to rock and roll pretty loudly. And he likes to party. So, there's this just like weird bent that runs through all, and I guess I should be used to it. You know, we're now what five movies into the series, so it shouldn't come as any surprise, but I can't help, you know, and I think we see this in slasher movies. Like you have that archetype, like the character that is too busy, not paying attention to their surrounding because they're party. Like they're the ones that get offed. You know, we see that here. Well, and I think that morality is is tied very closely to the fact that the, your heroes of the franchise are two very devout, very conservative Catholics. Um, I mean, it's 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 tied directly to that, and so I think a lot of the morality of this franchise is their morality because yeah. there are there are point of view characters, like they're the yeah. ones that we view this world through their eyes, and so their morality becomes the morality of the audience. And I know for a lot of people, that's kind of what turns them off about this franchise is the fact mm-hmm. that these are our point of view characters and this is the thing that they believe. 
yeah, someone raised to believe something very similar, I mean, I, I get it. It makes sense. But by the same token, yes, I, I, I understand the opposing view as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these movies have always like valued those are the values that will defeat the evil. I mean, it's like we've again, we've blasted through it and I'm sure we will again until we finish this franchise. But yeah, that's that's kind of the whole thread of it. It's very on display here in that we have a literal, we have two literal members of like a clergy, like leading the way here. Um, It's interesting that it is Frenchie. It's such a bait and switch. I mean, certainly you have to have him so that it works with the flashback scene, but it's a bait and switch because we have no reason to, like Valak is a demon and we have nothing um, other than the like conjuring, um, the like basis for Valak being like a nun that they saw in a church, the the real Warrens. Um, we have no reason to explain that Valak would take the form of a nun. We have like nothing to suggest that. Um, there's nothing that would that makes sense about that other than like that's her bit. So this movie is called The Nun, and like Valak's never been called the nun. She just looks like one, mm-hmm. um, but she's only ever been called Valak. And you have this young novice around who all of the other nuns are dead and, you know, so that they don't become the vessel. And right before she goes to tackle Valak and close the breach or close the portal or tunnel or whatever they call it. Mm -hmm. um, She says, let me take my final vows. And it's in this like climactic point of the movie that she becomes a nun and you're like, ah, oh, she's the nun. Um, you know, it's her, which you suspect it's her. I mean, they 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 cast Vera's younger sister in this movie called the nun. Like you're like, this is the this is the titular character. This is the titular role. And so you expect it. And but she's not a nun yet. And then she becomes a nun in the finale when she approaches yeah. Valak. Um, right. and Valak does kind of sort of take her. And then it's like, oh, surprise, it's actually Frenchie, which is, yeah. you know, the final twist. Right. And if Frenchie, you know, puts the moves on Sister Irene, she can say, hey, none of that. None oh, of that. Oh, oh, he's a dad. Done. He's a dad. I don't know if you guys know that. I'm allowed. Never I'm more allowed. evident than this moment right here. I am absolutely allowed. <laughs> Your dad moment. and regime. Um, yeah. So you get more into the origin of Valak. You find out that the Abbey was not always a convent. It was originally a place of satanic evil where you had like a devil worshiper sacrificing people left and right, just, you know, doing all sorts of nasty things. So you get the Holy Crusaders burst in and they try to cleanse it. Um, and when cleaning up needs to do, if you're the Catholic Church, you're like, that's women's work. We're going to leave the nuns here. <laughs> we're out of here. So, you know, we're out of here. We did our things with the swords and the nuns are left behind to constantly pray, which is, a, I think, really effective. Like some of the it's creepy and it's not supposed to be, but the visuals of the nuns praying uninterrupted and not allowing, you know, when they're being spoken to to kind of like breach uh, etiquette at that point like it's really creepy i love it so much it's so effective yeah yeah it's really creepy and it sets up like a thing that we kind of saw in insidious but doesn't really happen here or insidious 2 i guess that doesn't really happen here but the do they even have a face um because they're you know their faces are bowed into their hands and they're wearing their habits so you don't really see their faces yeah. um and that's really very scary and then and when you this- 
find out. This is where we get another twist in Lindsay. Yeah. Um, one of the other twist of the movie. Yeah, the one of the other one of the many other twists. Um, a huge one, which again is so cool because it happens. It happens. I think at like the forty out of ninety minute mark. Like it's more than halfway, but there's still a lot of movie left. Um, but uh, yeah, we've got her praying with the nuns. She joins in. Um, she's she's met them. She spent time with them. She's eaten with them. She's conversed with the, you know, she's witnessed their uh, hierarchy. Um, and then the uh, the men show back up and they're like, what, what have you been up to this whole time? She's like, oh, I'm praying with the nuns. Um, the nuns are not there. They were very much ghosts. What nuns? <laughs> what nuns? And she's like, I kind of will say, I do think that the worst delivered moment of the film is her being, they're like, what nuns? And she immediately just goes, wow, they felt so real. Um, <laughs> which I was like, no, give me a little more like, oh my Let God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's just like, oh, they felt so real. Anyway, um, but I guess, you know, if she's like super devout, maybe she would just like buy the supernatural, not mm-hmm. supernatural. She would buy the like potential of that more easily than um, someone who doesn't. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so you find out that the nuns like, were not this. there. We're yeah, he'd be like, no, done. but you might be like, I'm looking for this like specific, you know, explanation. But maybe she's mm-hmm. so devout that she's like, oh, okay, never mind. Um, I mean, what is it? But intercession of the saints on some level, right? Right. So, you know. So she has this like uh, moment where she realizes the nuns are all dead. And what she is seeing is their spirits very much still trying to pray to keep the breach closed, which is really spooky and really scary and pretty cool. Um, so cool. I don't want to say consequence. I don't know if that's the right word, but pretty cool. I, I'm going to say consequence. I can't think of anything else um, that it's like the, the demon is not like a living thing and that it doesn't possess a human body. Um, until it does. And it's kind of cool to think that like the souls of the past nuns are still able to like fight from, you Mm -hmm. know, beyond the grave, I guess there, you know, there's potentially some like connotation that like they didn't go to heaven or whatever that means. Is there a choice there? Yeah, I guess it doesn't really get into that. Like it doesn't really have like a conversation about like, are they trapped here? Or mm-hmm. if they're like angels or like what? I don't think so, right? Because right. angels aren't humans that become angels as far as I know. Right. But um, yeah, it's just like an interesting thing to think of them like as spirits right. themselves. Because they seem haunted by the place. They're definitely afraid of the presence that is there, which would lead me to think that like, because, you know, you could, if, if they're like a, a spiritual presence that is there, you would think that it could be just as simple as like, let's open up the heavenly floodgates and we could have like a rotating cast of saints and other um, spiritual mm-hmm. leaders proceed down to kind of rotate in and shifts. But what you have here are like what seems like a half dozen spirits that are left to kind of wander and are left in, in they're left in charge of like protecting this place once the portal is opened back up after the bombs drop. Yeah. I'm kind of having like an epiphany that I like didn't notice that this movie might be making huge implications of like how Valak actually affected the nuns, which maybe is really obvious, but for some reason I just like didn't think about it until right now I'm like, Oh yeah, maybe there's some sort of 
consequence of like mm-hmm. Valak's evil or this this uh, Abby's evil is yeah. such that you're you're stuck mm-hmm. here like you're not mm-hmm. a released soul like Valak killed you yeah. and yeah. now you're like cursed quite possibly hmm. which we'll potentially talk yeah. more about that kind of thing I think when we record our three up like right after we're done here <laughs> yeah thing I've been watching that I really enjoyed. Ooh, um, oh man. Now I'm like, I like want to dive into this. I've got like plans yeah. now. Interesting. Excellent. Interesting. Um, I, I think I, I might would know say what it like, is. One thing about this movie, you know, I think by this point, the formula for how they do a scare is so, it's kind of like when you buy into like a, a Maybelline or a Tupperware franchise, it's like, this is the pitch. Like, this is the script. This is how you execute it. This is how it's done. And if you do it this way, nine times out of 10, like you'll get a yes. Like the way mm-hmm. these movies craft their scares is you have like a camera that starts from the POV of the character. It goes outward to like an object in space and then slowly rotates back in, goes into the character. And then there is like the creepy crawly in the background. And it's like, deathly quiet deathly quiet deathly quiet and then it's loud like the dynamic range of these movies is off the charts mm-hmm. um you see that happen a few times i think like probably the most effective use of it but also the most obvious is when irene is in the room where the nun flung herself out the window you see her like staring at that window it focuses on it then turns back to her and then the nun like grabs her and stuff starts flying everywhere. The cross comes crashing down. Um, I kind of would like to see them maybe incorporate some new scares into these movies. They're starting to feel a bit too familiar. I mean, am I wrong here? Am I, am I asking for too much like five movies in? I don't think you're necessarily asking for too much, but on the other hand, there's the whole, if it's not broke, don't fix it argument that could potentially be made as well, where this is the conjuring franchise and people come to expect this level of, Mm -hmm. or this type of scare from this movie. Now, Mm -hmm. do I think that that needs to be the only tool in your tool belt that you use the only trick in your arsenal? Absolutely not. You know, you've got a whole quiver, use multiple arrows, you know, you don't want to always see, um, green arrow pulling out the boxing glove arrow you know he's got other arrows that he can use and by the same token so do these filmmakers they've, they've got other stuff that they can pull from and other stuff that they can use and I yeah you do kind of want them to see it but by the same token you want them to play the hits too like I, I think they could p- potentially find a balance between those two extremes yeah I feel like these movies um, and kind of like the James Wan universes like you know Insidious these movies I guess pretty much just those two. Um, you come to expect his like certain specific brand of jump scare. Like I do really think that he had a huge hand in the jump scare coming back and becoming super popular and trendy. Um, so I think it's like, that's what you want from these. Like, I think when you go to a conjuring or insidious movie, you know what kind of scares you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Um And yeah, I think there's like a piece of that, but I do agree. Like they can mess with it more. Like, again, that's, I think maybe like tying it back to the score. I think maybe that's what I like so much about the score is that it creates such a different tone for the scares Mm -hmm. than the like build up jump Mm -hmm. that you usually get from the jump scares in this movie. It's just like a constant Mm -hmm. stress. Um, But yeah, I, I I get you. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I will say like the last thing I do like the end of this movie. I think it is a, Number one, I like the reveal of like Irene in the pentagram. Again, 
excellent use of shadow and dark where you have just like different candles that are lit up and then you eventually see that pentagram circle. Like I really love that beautifully done, but also like spitting the 2000 year old blood of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ into the face of <laughs> the like... demonic nun. Pretty fucking badass. Right. Go. Um, yeah. And I did a little bit of looking like into Christian theology. Like what are, the powers Jesus's blood like can it like act like xenomorph blood and basically so like spitting acid in somebody which would be again <laughs> super cool um but there are powers that are associated with his blood um, but they're more along the lines of like cleansing a person of sin absolving a person's conscience and bringing a person closer to god again nothing about melting demons i will say the closest you have to that in revelation 12 11 which is kind of the QAnon or reddit like 4chan thread of books of the bible oh like gosh. that's pretty much you know it's pretty out there like it is some unhinged shit in revelation sure um, hey, i'll take so your word for it like we can have a revelation over- conversation if you want i can i can we talk could. about revelation we could i mean it's it's where you get some of the more out there um onward Christian soldier type stuff. So, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the, by the word of their testimony and they love not their lives unto death. That's the closest thing I could find in terms of like Jesus's blood, having some sort of like weapon, like power to it. But even that's pretty. And yeah. and I think the, the mistake I think most people make with revelation is that the book is largely metaphorical and written to yes. a very specific audience. Yeah. The Bible is the whole Bible is true metaphor, but I think that applies. I think most more to revelation than a lot of people are willing to admit. Hmm. Um, so, um, things like the weaponization of the, the blood is not necessarily meant to be taken extremely literal Hmm. in that case. Um, although I will say there is a story in the gospels about Jesus spitting into some dirt and making mud and rubbing it on a blind man's eyes. And suddenly he's able to see. Mm -hmm. So, that's not his blood, but you know, the saliva, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it is. Well, that's where you get, you know, rub some dirt in it. I think I'm pretty sure that is where that expression <laughs> comes from. I'm learning a lot. Um, just rub some dirt in it. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, one of the things I like about this movie is like Sister Irene's take on what biblical stories are. Like when they had the discussion of like, well, Mother Superior says like dinosaurs aren't real. Um, and that they're a way for God to test us. Um, and it's not like we're only, I want to say, maybe less than a decade removed from a serious presidential candidate saying that he thought that the dinosaurs were around 5,000 years ago um, and that the earth is only like maybe 10,000 years old. Like there are people that believe this. And to me, like I, I am a spiritual person. I believe in something bigger than ourselves and there's something greater than this and something after this. But I also believe that it's much too large for us to comprehend and that every religion's tomes are our ways of trying to make sense of it. And to me, the old Testament in particular in the early books of the Bible, like Genesis and Exodus, not so much uh, Genesis in particular, they are essentially they're Aesop's fables. Um, and I remember like, even as a kid, I had a children's Bible, an illustrated children's Bible. And one of the first, when they talk about the story of creation and they talk about 
on the first day God created the world. There was an asterisk. And I remember this as a young kid reading when we talk about a day in this context, what we're talking about is millennia and that we're not talking about a day in 24 hours. This is a metaphor. It's a parable. And I was taught that as a child. I think there are a large number of believers who like, no, it was 24 hours. There Mm. absolutely are. Yeah. Absolutely are. I mean, that's my tradition. I'm going to be honest with you, but. Well, I don't mean to spit on your tradition. No, no. Believe me, Mike. No, I I don't believe that. And I haven't for a while. I mean, I I used to teach uh, the Old Testament Mm. um, for like the better part of eight years uh, in Christian high schools around uh, around my area. Mm hmm. Um, so like I have a, and, and Genesis was one of my, particularly the, that creation narrative is one of my favorites, but drawing parallels to the Babylonian creation story, the Enumi Elish pointing out the, the obvious, uh, Hebrew poetry, um, that, that appears in there. If you understand Hebrew poetry and parallelism, like you can see, this is a, a work of art. This is not meant to be taken Literally, the word in Hebrew does not mean literal 24-hour day. It just means period of time. It, yeah. it's, it's the most nondescript word that you could possibly mm-hmm. use. Like, yeah. um, like I, I could seriously just like crack into this thing and just go. Um, I will not. I will spare your listeners that. Um, but like just – I mean, yes, there are absolutely people who buy into that 24-hour day stuff. And here's the thing. Like I was, I was probably the the – Sister Irene. In so you're the sister Irene. <laughs> because I was the religion teacher and I was saying, no, this is not meant to be understood literally. Whereas you go to the science class and it's being taught as scientific facts. Mm. And I'm saying, look, scientifically, this doesn't make sense. Light is created three days before the sun. In what context does that make sense? Water mm. is not actually created. Water's always been there. And that's because of, you know, the ancient primordial idea of just kind of water being nothingness. Like there's, there's all this symbolism and, and stuff that's kind of, again, outside of what we know now to be scientifically accurate because it wasn't written to be scientifically accurate. It was meant to impress upon the ancient Hebrews that there is one God and he created us by himself out of nothing like that. He is the origin of life. That is the point of Genesis one. And to crack at it literally is to misunderstand it on its face. Damn, go off. Um, I I, I think, yeah, it's very interesting perspective that I obviously don't have. So I'm, I'm very much an external observer in this. And I'm like, interesting perspective. Right. <laughs> so I guess on that note, Valak's eyebrow game. First of all, oh, Valak okay. has fire eyebrows. I actually want to yes. exploit you too briefly. I have a question. Okay. I want to exploit the two of you. Um, this might be a question more for Mike. I do not know. So I like, I said this before, and maybe this makes me like terrible, And but I don't know. I very much am into religious horror. I think it's such a cool thing to mm-hmm. get horror from. But like I said, being the quote external observer in uh, Christian horror, I get to like really treat it like cool demon canon, which is like yeah. maybe nasty, but um, <laughs> that's just like my approach. I'm like, I like have like, anyway, I know like so much about like Christian demonology, but like from like a, you know, an academic perspective in a way, but sure. Um, So without objectifying it, a lot of um, mostly Catholic demon stories, there's a lot of conversation about these like ancient relics that are like hidden within the Vatican Mm -hmm. and certain churches in Europe. And 
I'm so curious if this is like something that like was like, is this something that you have heard like mentioned? Like, so I'm thinking of like earlier this year, I watched 30 coins. I'm trying to think of like so many, there's so many other examples that um, like, even of course in the like, gosh, those Nick Cage movies. Um, but um, anyway, I'm like, is there any foundation of that? Like, is there like, yeah. are there myth or stories? Yeah. That there's like blood of Christ hidden beneath the Vatican and things like that. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, that was a way in, I would say, probably like maybe around the Middle Ages, maybe a little before of kind of, quote unquote, maybe legitimizing your church in a particular part of the world. Um, Like these were on a lot of times these were things that were brought back from the Crusades um, and then things that were kind of brought into these cathedrals uh, all throughout, particularly Rome. Uh, And my wife has visited Rome and seen a number of these relics, but you have like the teeth of John the Baptist or the finger of St. Peter or, you know, these things that belonged to the, the apostles. Shroud of Turin, I think right. is probably the most famous huh. one of all, which is Holy Grail, to be which the is, yeah. shroud that like Jesus was buried in and carries the imprint of his visage on it. So there are, yeah, it, it's part of Christianity, Catholicism and the Vatican in particular. There is this belief that like, demons are real and Satan is real and that there is real evil in the world to be battled. And I think there is this idea that there is um, an unending war in heaven to this day, that there's like demons and angels, like still doing battles just outside of our, our sight line. So it is part of like the Catholic tradition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just wondered if like, it was like a complete like fiction, um, that there were these like relics that it was like underneath the church. Here's what you don't know, but damn. So there Oftentimes really they are. wouldn't keep them in the basement. A lot of times they'll display them very prominently. Yeah. Um, so that when tourists come through, you can see them and kind of walk by them. People will um, mm-hmm. use them as objects for prayer, like mm-hmm. to focus their prayer. Like it they're Yeah. They're everywhere, particularly mm-hmm. in, I would say Rome or probably. More I saw that. Like I did tour the Vatican while I was there and saw a lot of, things but i i was like are there like vials yeah. of the blood of christ stowed away from demons like oh, that no. probably not yeah but I'm like, huh. that would be odd i think that'd be dried i out. don't know it comes up yes. a lot i think both of you should it watch is. 30 coins which i've recommended previously <laughs> i have to start that um they yeah. are there are um i mean there are are members of the vatican or like divisions of the vatican that are still they're devoted to kind of proving miracles. Like they investigate mm-hmm. miracles. There are demonologists. There are, I mean, there are exorcists that, you know, it is something that is still practiced. Um, you know, it's, you know, they have to have a reason they feel like they should go in. And it's another way we, my wife and I were talking last night. There are, you know, there's one exorcist out there who said like, he's performed hundreds of them. And he said, look, 99 point, like nine, nine, times like there's like a mental health reason or some sort of health reason like there's an explanation for why this person is presenting in this way he's like he's like but you know i have a handful of cases where they've like possessed some knowledge that there's no way that they should have any access to whatsoever so um you know like who knows at that point um i heard a story from a a former uh colleague of mine i'll leave as many of the details uh, as I can out, but um, was traveling through uh, another country on a missions trip and they were bringing people forward to be healed. And 
um, like casting out demons and things. And these people were actually doing that. And this colleague of mine, like had real trouble believing that that was something that he was capable of doing. And so he prayed that the spirit would open his eyes to see the thing that was afflicting this person. And um, he, he claims that when he opened his eyes, he saw the demonic entity um, and was then able to cast it from this person. Uh, he said a couple of years later, he went to a move to the movies and saw um, a movie called Ghostbusters. And when Slimer came on the screen, he stood up in the theater and yelled, I've seen that because apparently demons look a lot like Slimer. I need to just, I'm just not making that story. Up. I world. do not think you're making it up. I just need a minute to consume that. Yeah. Need a minute. And again, that's, that's a story I heard secondhand, but, uh, I, I heard I heard this individual tell that story on multiple occasions. So I can't think of a better way to kind of close things. <laughs> you know, out. I'm like I had a closer, but I'm like, forget it. <laughs> no, I sorry, I did not mean to. No, to completely I mean it in the like. That's not what I meant at all. I'm just like, yes. Love it. <laughs> so, Stephen, tell us about disenfran the disenfranchised podcast. Yeah. So, my co-host Brett Wright and I, who is is really dying to be on this show, and I keep telling him he needs to get back on Twitter so you can communicate mm -hmm. with him a little more easily. But um, he and I talk about um, movies that were destined for franchise greatness, but uh, kind of couldn't get past their first movie. Kind of the antithesis of what you guys do here. And Mike, I know mm -hmm. you've been trying to st start a street brawl for for a while we we're gonna we've been man style we've been avoiding it because we know we're going down that's the problem um I fight dirty that's uh, what i've been given to understand <laughs> um but no i mean we've talked and we we've honestly we've talked a lot uh of horror movies actually the last time i was on this podcast i i had cat scully was on and mm -hmm. she came and did our dead silence episode like we we worked that out on the air i've actually we've actually got both of you guys on the schedule to come and join us later this year which we're very excited about thrilled to have yep. you, both of you guys on Mike I actually need to talk to you. Cause we need to record that episode with like okay. relatively soon. So, all right. Um, but, uh, we, um, yeah, that's what, that's kind of what we do. Um, we've talked about a ton of great movies, a uh, ton of great horror movies, and we've got a few more great. We've actually going to do nothing but horror movies throughout the month of October, which we're very excited about. So, Excellent. uh, come check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're at disenfranch pod on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Chewy Walrus on Twitter. You can find me and listen to me talk about movies or occasionally my frustrations with uh, my my fellow Christians. So, Excellent. Well, Lindsay, where can we find you? What's going on? Uh, Y'all know where to find me. Um, I'm at Smash Travis, S-M-A-S-H-T-R-A-V-E-S -E on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and those are the best places to see what I'm up to. You have a ton of festival coverage coming up, right? Where are we going to be? <laughs> I have a lot of. Are we going to be able to read your festival coverage? Good question. Most of it will be on CG Mag Online, CG Magazine, uh, cgmagonline.com uh, will be where a chunk of it is. I'm going to Fantasia, and then I'm probably going. Well, anyway, we'll we'll cap it. Fantasia is going to be the whole month of August, um, mm -hmm. so I will see you around there. Um, yeah. That'll be the best place. For and me. as the other ones come up, we will let you know what's happening there. Yeah. Well, you can I'll find see you in me. November. Yeah. See you in, see you in hell. <laughs> listeners. Um, um, so you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian over on Twitter. 
You can follow our show at Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. Join our Facebook group. Go to facebook.com slash Pod and the Pendulum. It's pretty much like all I use the Facebook for is the two shows I'm on and like the marketplace uh, to buy you stuff. Um, other than that, I hate that hellscape. Um, <laughs> you can listen to my other show, Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast. Uh, we have a weekly show where we cover the topic of horror and mental health, along with my co-host Jen Ferratu and Laura Understall. Um, everywhere you get your podcast. So in the meantime, listeners, if you can do us a favor and if you can rate us wherever you get your podcast, more importantly, if you can review us, if you can drop us like a five star rate and review and make sure you subscribe a few sentences about why you like the show goes a very long way to helping like an independent show like this find new listeners um really excited because in the past year it seems like the listening ship has doubled even though we've gone from weekly to bi-weekly so i'm not sure how that works but i think that's because you guys have been awesome about spreading the word i know there will be at some point in this episode backed up a little bit i'm sure there's a two minute clip asking you to join our patreon page but once again i'm going to say like go to patreon.com backslash pod and the pendulum there are like about a dozen bonus like full-length bonus episodes we just dropped our werewolves within episode we have movies like the blob batman krampus 976 evil it follows um dark man like movies we wouldn't normally get to cover within the scope of the show um Lindsay and i are going to kind of finalize like what tiers like what when we get to a certain donation amount what new things are going to add in terms of like doing reviews or spotlights or like um, bringing certain creatives on to kind of talk about their work. So once we hit a dollar amount where we feel like, hey, that is worth our while to add it, we're going to add that for you, the listener, as well. So until next time, we're back. What are we back with next week or two weeks with Lindsay? We are back in two weeks with our good friend Annabelle. Annabelle comes home. So she's coming home excellent. she's coming home on her way home sweet home all right everyone <laughs> thanks so much for listening have a great night